to the cold dive. I'm Lucas, otherwise known as Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for occasional musings on uh, cryptography, technology, and, you know, whatever else. So, um, today let's just jump right into it and talk about cryptographic proofs of security. Because that's like what's been rummaging uh, my mind for a while now. It's been sort of a big focus of my research, sort of accidentally. So I guess the usual like starting point I had in my mind here is that this topic is usually not neglected, that's the wrong word, but I'd say gets less attention than I believe it deserves. And there's, like with anything that's like underrated often, it's a second order effect of it not being perceived as important in some sense. As unlike, it's not that people don't end up working on it directly, that's a, a thing, but it's even beyond that. People even don't understand why you would need or want to work on it, uh, usually to a lesser extent than, than that. So I guess that's a long way of saying that I'm going to start this out by sort of justifying what interests me in, uh, in this subfield. But perhaps I should, you know, very quickly clarify what I'm talking about. Although we'll talk about what it is I'm talking about in more detail later. So what I mean by, you know, cryptographic proofs is just um, one thing we've done a lot ever since we sort of created this paradigm of provable security is that we try and show that various cryptographic constructions are secure under some notion of security. We want to construct protocols that you know, are guaranteed to work under certain conditions. We want to construct new you know, encryption schemes, signatures, and stuff that are also guaranteed to work, you know, assuming some assumptions hold. And also not just work, but also be secure against attacks. There's like limits to these. I think I've gone over this in previous episodes. Uh, anyhow. So at a mechanistic level, what ends up attracting me and it makes me keep coming back to this subfield is that it just feels like everything I do is dependent on it being easy and nice to work with. Um, for me, I think Rubo Security is something that really set off a light switch when I was getting into cryptography. It really felt like a huge paradigm shift. Uh, like before then, I felt like I was kind of, you know, grasping in the dark. Like cryptography was a big bag of tricks and things to know, and I just, I could learn stuff, but it felt like it was very disconnected. And uh, there wasn't really any organizing theory to it. And then when I discovered provable security through uh, the Benay and Shoup book, I thought, you know, wow, this is actually sort of like a way of organizing all this information and sort of a way of putting everything I know on a very stable footing, you know. And so it felt like turning on the light switch in, in the room and being able to sort of see the furniture around me instead of stumbling around. And over time, like, that sort of impression has grown to the point where I feel like there is... Like, I'm tearing up the carpet and I feel like there's a larger structure underneath the floorboards, you know. Like, there's a lot uh, more hidden structure in cryptography to be discovered, and a lot of things are left unexplored because we're sort of limited by what we can prove and... Even beyond that, what we can prove about our proving systems themselves. I've talked about, I think, metacryptography already in an episode of this stuff. 
And metacryptography is an example of the kind of thing that's sort of underexplode because our proof systems are, you know, somewhat vaguely defined. And so having more sort of research on proof systems themselves would allow uh, the exploration of stuff like that. And so whenever I, I've been doing other research this semester, it's uh, it's always made me think back to sort of this. Like I've been doing all the research on cryptographic protocols and MPC, and that involves sort of defining concrete protocols and proving them secure. But then whenever I go to do that, I'm like, well, I need a good framework to prove these things secure. And I wasn't happy with UC. I could like spend an episode complaining about that. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that here. But I had some columns with the main like way people prove things secure. And so I wanted to sort of create my own framework that sort of brought some things I liked about the typical proofs for game-based security uh, to the protocol setting. So that was the MPS paper at the beginning of the year. And after running some proofs in it, I'm not, you know, quite super happy with it, and I have some good ideas to improve it, and I'm sort of, you know, developing on the side while I, you know, finish other parts of my thesis. But, you know, even as I work on those parts of the thesis, I'm like, well, you know, if I had this new framework, it would be, like, slightly easier to do these things. Uh, and I keep thinking, it's like, um, you know, sometimes in research you have, like, a default thought, you know. When you're not thinking of anything else, you kind of just think about that one problem you're working on. And it's, it's feel like, uh, you know, this proof stuff has been has been uh, the default thought for a while now, especially recently. As of, as of the past couple of weeks, I've been really default thoughting on this one. Uh, whenever I don't have anything other, any other research topic uh, occupying my mind, I come back to, you know, how do I do better proofs of protocol security? And it's also having such a framework... Uh, it would aid the day-to-day -day task. It also enables a lot of meta-research. So, I mean, there's like the meta-cryptography stuff that, that's aided by having a well-defined proof framework, of course. But even beyond that, there's like some... As I think more about this uh, eventual, like, even more slimmer and, and more beautiful version of MPS that, that might potentially be able to, to be done, I think of like sort of weird... Not necessarily weird, but niche... Ideas that I hadn't thought of before just become natural consequences of like having this this nice framework to work with. Like one thing I'm, I'm thinking of is, well, there's sort of two ideas I might lay out. So one idea is like a notion of aggregatable MPC protocols. So a lot of MPC protocols, the way that decomposition works is that because they're very symmetric, the difference between like security of two parties versus n parties is like. A very similar proof. Like the proof strategy is basically like you can sort of aggregate all of the honest inputs together and aggregate all of the malicious inputs together. For example, summing them. Because in the end, what you need to do is like sum all the contributions. Like one example that works like this is like uh, sampling a random value. It's a very simple protocol to do this in MPC. Everybody commits to a random value, then everybody opens and you sum up the values together. And you're going to get a random field element or your XOR uh, if you want to get a random bit string, right? which is addition in some kind of uh, ring. And so this is, uh, you know, a secure protocol. But if you look at, like, a security proof or something like this, what's interesting is that, like, if you have three versus five or ten honest parties, it, it boils down to the same sort of proof. What you're going to do is, like, generate all the honest uh, parties except one randomly, and the other one is going to be, like, set to a sum based on, like, what the ideal functionality spits you out. So, 
there's also like a kind of natural aggregate ability of the protocol in the sense that like you could take three parties and like pretend that they're acting as like one you know joint honest party by summing all their contributions together and same with like what the malicious party is trying to do right and so i'm thinking maybe you can sort of like formalize a notion of an aggregatable npc protocol and like prove that um if you're trying to prove this thing secure you can prove it in a simple way but like there that's already kind of like a meta cryptographic statement if you think about it right i'm saying you know for these classes of cryptographic schemes uh, a proof can be done this way so that's like already like a higher order statement about proofs all right it's not this thing is secure here's a proof it's well you know this class of proofs uh, can be done via this class of proofs uh so if you want to make those higher order statements you need a very well-defined notion of what a proof is all right because you need to be able to like transform a proof of security into another proof sort of um and that's why you need a very well-defined and robust and you know rigid security framework not rigid but uh well-defined that's it's a better term and so the other sort of meta cryptographic idea that sort of stemmed from thinking about this is that um in many one sort of shortcoming of mps is that like the ideal functionality or protocol has to reflect like timing issues in the original protocol. So for example, the original protocol has say three rounds, then the ideal functionality would need to have three rounds too. But this is a, an artifact of the framework entirely. The issue is that basically the simulator has no sway whatsoever the honest parts of the protocol, including delaying them. But if you give the simulator the power to like delay messages without seeing them into the honest parts, then you can sort of uh, simulate the three rounds, even with an ideal functionality, that's faster in some sense. And so that's definitely a core part of the, the next framework I'm working on. And this sort of made me think that for certain classes of protocols, potentially, it might be the case that like you can sort of separate out the actual data that's being sent across the rounds and the sort of round structure itself. So maybe you have a three round protocol and data sent along the rounds. But maybe I construct the protocol so that the ideal and uh, there's an ideal functionality even at the very start that does all the computation, and then the parties just like have some kind of communication structure reflecting like the message dependencies, like the causal ordering of stuff. And the idea is that this causal ordering could then be simulated out by the simulator, so then you're just left with this very simple ideal functionality. So with like a round-based protocol, what we'd end up with is like a functionality where the adversary sees all the honest messages from the first round; they have to send their last message. Uh, for the first round, and so on and so forth. And that becomes like a very simple game-based definition of like some round-based security. And so this is interesting because then you could like, one sort of idea I had with MPS was that you want to be able to like potentially distill protocols, protocol-based security into game-based security. And technically you're doing this. Uh, the games you get are very complicated though, compared to like game-based security, because you have all these like asynchronous notions and whatnot. But here you sort of remove all the concurrency aspects because like all the communication patterns have been removed and you have a very simple back and forth you know traditional game structure so that's a huge improvement over like nps and so then this would sort of match like some of the game-based security notions we've seen for npc protocols like uh, if you look at threshold signatures there's a big line of work uh started with like frost and stuff that do uh, game-based security for that instead of uc security and the idea here is that you would actually be able to say, yeah, actually, because Frost is like, uh, you know, a round-based protocol, the security game they define is actually, you know, correct. Uh, uh, the security notion they define is just sort of uh, a distillation of the actual concurrent security notion that you, you developed in this framework. 
to swim through a game because of you sort of eliminate all these communication aspects. And so that'd be like very cool. And then like I guess an idea I might develop about even this framework is the notion of like aggregatable games, right? Uh, like here you see multiple messages for each child's party, but the idea is like maybe you can like sum these together or something. And like for any kind of game that's like aggregatable, you can turn like a multi-message version of the game into a single message version, reflecting one honest party instead of you know multiple. To then simplify like the the game a lot. Another thing having a rigid framework would help with is uh, working with idealized functionalities and whatnot. So yeah, I guess uh, I've moved on from like justifying my interest in like mo uh, you know new proof frameworks into like talking about this this one. I guess I might as well like flesh out uh, some of the ideas here a bit more. Like one one sort of idea that I like about MPS is that this is that basically is like this notion of protocol hopping. The idea is like you move from protocol to protocol and you try and avoid like huge simulators as much as possible. That's like two things you try what trying to do is like you you limit the simulator size um by having intermediate protocols that sort of exist as proof artifacts. And I think that's a great idea that wasn't really present before. And I think it's actually a really good idea. And another way you can evaluate the big simulator problem in MPS is that you can split up the simulator itself across like multiple games. So like if you're appealing to the fact that the simulator works, you can split that proof that it works into like multiple like game hops uh, using states of verbal proofs. So that's another aspect. But yeah, basically the complexity of the simulator dictates like how many hops you're going to need. Um, one way to like visualize this is you have like a, uh, a right angle triangle. So like Imagine a straight line at the top, a straight line at a right angle at the bottom, at what the left side, and then you sort of have a line, you know, cutting up and squeezing uh, from the bottom left to the top right. So at the very left, you have a huge bar, and then as you move to the right, the bar gets smaller and smaller until you have a single point. Um, and one way to look at this is that on the left, you have sort of the original protocol, on the right, you have sort of the ideal protocol. And so then, each, the closer to the ideal protocol, basically the smaller the simulator is going to need to be, which is why this bar sort of shrinks until becoming a single point, where once you're at the ideal protocol, the simulator is trivial. Uh, but if you're at the original protocol, the simulator is very big. And so MPS gives you like two ways to decompose this. So you can either, you need to get from like A to B, you need to get from like the top line at the, at the left to the bottom line, right? And so, one way to get to the bottom line is you say, okay, I'm just going to make a big simulator from the original protocol to the ideal protocol, which is the bottom line. And, you know, when we, and, and what, where MPS helps you is that you can sort of chop up the vertical distance into smaller game hops. And that's sort of breaking down the sort of correctness of the simulator into multiple game-based appeals. But at the end, you still have like a large simulator. Um, what you can also do is you can sort of break things down horizontally. So you make it so that the simulator... <coughs> Somebody has less distance to travel to. But the point is you have these two strategies, but I think the, the game-based sort of breakdown of the simulator is a good idea, and you probably want it, but as much as possible, writing simulators is just a pain. It's a pain in the neck. And ideally, the simulators you write in MPS often tend to be very you know, generic. There's a lot of stuff just about like communication patterns and like turning, you know, 
unrolling messages until I can do functionalities. A lot of stuff is just not... It could be made a lot more, like, generic, but it's difficult to do that in MPS. Even though you, it's a lot more modular than you see, it's it's modular in, like, a big fashion. Like, you, if I use another protocol completely, I can do that. But it's very difficult to say, well, you know, this communication pattern is used, and it's the same communication pattern as in another protocol, so... Blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, in the, in the framework I'm trying to develop, you'd be able to have much more fine-grained, like, appeals to this thing. Also... The idea of the framework I'm developing is that, like, as much as possible, like, you really don't have a simulator. As much as possible, instead, you just sort of appeal, or you try to appeal, basically, to protocol hops directly. So your life is much easier if you can just... Where MPS is nice is when, like, you say, okay, you know, this thing, I decompose it into, like, several protocols glued together, and then I appeal to sort of, like, one protocol being simulated by another and that's, you know, fine and dandy. And when you're doing that, you're, like, happy, you're in your zone, you're flourishing, you know. Uh, you're relaxed. Because everything just sort of, like, works. Uh, you know, you're moving bits around, it's it's great. You're just doing very simple, like, in-and-outs. Where it's a lot more complicated is, like, when you're doing, like, these sort of game-based, you know, hops and MPS, it's, like, if these very monstrous games to work with, it's, like, bleh. Like, the issue that you have is that, like... You have to like think of a protocol as like an entire like thing. You have to think of the entire execution of the protocol as like your game and like becomes very hairy, especially with longer protocols, right? You have these huge games. And so ideally you'd like to sort of be able to break down games and like sequential components with like well-defined behavior. Uh, which is tricky. That's very tricky to do. And even I don't think the new firm is gonna like solve that problem too much. What you can do is like you can sort of appeal to general communication patterns as much as possible. And the idea is like you have a much more flexible notion of protocol. Um, and so different, so like a, a communication pattern could be like a protocol. You you have, you define semantics of and properties of. And so then as much as possible, you appeal to like uh, protocol hopping. So like you appeal to like differences in protocols rather than like huge game-based things as much as possible. You try and do that. And that just makes your life easier because any time you can do that, it's like free advancement in your proof. You know, as I, as I talk about, like, the, the advantages of this thing I haven't, you know, done yet, I'm realizing that it's probably going to be more limited than I expect. Is it, yeah, as these things always are. Like, you, you, you try and solve problems, and you think, oh, you know, this new thing I'm working on is going to, like, solve all of my problems, you know? I'm going to fix, like, all the you know, bad stuff. And then inevitably, like, you, you make some improvements, but then uh, there's still some downsides. But the downsides have changed, at least, right? So you're sort of slowly and slowly chinking away at the armor of the bad stuff. The other advantage of having uh, these well-defined proof frameworks is that it makes it much easier to sort of have machine verification of these things. Um, so there's sort of like a little mini-debate about this usually when it comes up. So I think, you know, we're sort of reaching the point quickly where like proofs well, I think I think for like proofs, if they're vaguely written, they're just like very difficult to actually check. Um, and also, like the fun thing about a vague proof is that like if it's if you find a mistake in it, like you're not sure if it's a mistake or like you're misinterpreting it. And also, if a proof is like vague enough, it's like vague enough that you can always like correct a mistake by like you know adding in the right details. Like depending on how you interpret a vague proof, sometimes it can be right or wrong. Or or like if it's vague, you can argue well, you know, you know, I'm omitting steps out, you know, for the sake of legibility. So yeah, maybe that's a mistake, but it's, you know, you can sort of, you know, get around the mistake easily. 
Like in math, math papers, you sometimes like see this argument. It's like, well, yeah, sure, there may be a mistake, but you know, morally, you know, it's correct, and you know, it's easy to fix the mistakes. It's not really a mistake. <laughs> you know, if the if there's no door in the house, but you can cut a door out. You know, it's, it's, is there really no door? You know, and I think as as I've sort of been like working on a very tedious proof myself. Like, I found myself wanting machine verification a lot because it was just, you know, even beyond me uh, at times. Like, like, sometimes you just want to make a big step and just have a computer check it <laughs> instead of checking it yourself. And I feel like uh, sort of a machine-human synthesis of, like, proof creation is, like, the future of mathematics in general. So you want to sort of prime cryptography to be able to do that. And for that, I mean, you need to well-define, you know, mathematical definition of what proofs are, you know. But the debate... Now, in this is you say, okay, well, you know, proofs are too complicated. Let's get a machine to verify them. Um, the issue is that then, well, what if the statement is very complicated? <laughs> so if you have a protocol that's, like, too complicated to understand to the point that you can't understand the proof either, well, the statement is also going to be very complicated because the statement involves the protocol itself. So there's sort of a catch-22 there. That's sort of the issue I take with, like, you know, one, one thing I've seen a lot about, like, people... Talking about how LLMs could like be made robust uh, with regards to like coding and software, is to say, oh well, the the large language model could also generate uh, a proof that the program it generated is correct and does the right thing. The issue I see with that is that well, what's the right thing? Like, the LLMs are not known for like reliably doing exactly what you tell them to. Like, maybe I want to ask it, you know, for a program that finds, uh, you know the nth prime number, right? And it maybe it generates a proof that, you know, the program uh, that it spit out, you know, this is the right thing. But then you look closely at the statement of the proof, and it's like, oh, you know, I wrote a program that generates uh, the nth prime number sometimes. You know, <laughs> I, I generate, I wrote a program that either generates the nth prime number or just a number. <laughs> you know, you could, you could write a proof of that. It'd probably be pretty easy to write a proof that your program does that, but that's not, you know, the property I want. And so, like, you're always going to have, like, this issue where, like, the statement that you've made in English doesn't correspond to the mathematical proof statement itself, even if you the proof can be checked by a machine. Uh, that's actually reliable. And I think that's going to be an internal problem, especially as you try to, like, ask for, like, programs that are sort of, like, beyond your own comprehension. Like, how do you even check the statement? Like, uh... Like, if I'm running a... And also, you get into the things where, like, the me and not even be a correct statement of, like, what it means for a piece of software to be correct. Like, oh, write me a secure operating system. You know, maybe we'll get to that point, but, I mean, what's the definition of security for that? Uh -huh. But, I mean, if we get to a point where it's, like, we're sort of debating with a computer about, like, what is the definition of what its form of verification target goal is for automatically generated programs, that'd be, like, a huge advancement in software. So, you know, I feel like that's a problem we might, might be able to worry about when we get there. Um, so yeah, I think formal verification is probably the future of cryptographic proof sooner or later. And I think having models of that, having sort of good proof systems for aiding that is, is sort of very critical. Um, I guess I, maybe I should sort of end this by like describing some of the ideas in this like unknown framework. So, I mean, the, uh, the main idea sort of going for is that um, you can generalize games in states of... Oh, yeah, it's also a generalization of states of proofs. Well, I'm not, you know, why not? 
uh, it's being convenient to do that. So in standard world proofs, it's sort of like you have a machine you interact with, and you call functions. And sort of one way to like see this is like it's it's kind of like a a graph, right? So the messages basically like a sort of game that you can interact with is like a sort of graph. You have like wires, you know, connecting to this box that you can send messages on. Uh, it's more convenient if it's like sent once. So you know, each time I have I want to send a message, it has to be like a wire that I can send one message on. And then there's wires coming out that I can receive messages on. So an adversary interacts by like routing to these wires once and then sort of reading from the other wires. And you can imagine like connecting different games together by just, you know, hooking the wires up. Uh, where this becomes interesting is that you have more general connections than just composition that you get in state server proofs, where that's sort of like you're wiring everything up at once. Here you can have like, you can imagine like wiring things up in very different ways. I can have like three games that I wire together in sort of an arbitrary fashion. And so this is very useful for modeling like players in a protocol. Uh, you know, players can tie ideal functionalities. It's very nice. Another that's sort of nice thing about this like graph-based approach is that it makes writing different games much simpler. Because so one thing, tedious thing in MPS, you need to write these like weights. Like, oh, I need to wait for this event to happen. You know, it's very annoying. But here you'd sort of always write things like you just read from the wire and that's implicitly meaning that like sort of the computation is halted until that wire is ready. Um, and if you structure your code right, you can even make it so that like the temporal weight is like doesn't leak any secret information, which gives you nice properties in terms of the adversary. Um, basically, I'm thinking that like you, in terms of the, defining the adversary, you have like multiple levels of uh, gradation, depending on their strength of being able to influence like causal events in the concurrent graph. Is like maybe the adversary can delay messages. Uh, maybe they can like not even maybe they're like a you know an actor that has to follow the same concurrency rules and being very simple in terms of like not having race conditions in its own code and whatnot uh and that would be sort of a weaker adversary but maybe you can show that that weaker adversary captures everything an adversary can like do to actually beat a protocol um for simple protocols that's my hope at least and so anyhow you can write things like okay you know a equals b plus c where b and c are like wires and then the idea is that like once B and C are both ready, then A becomes ready. And this is like a thing that showed up in some of my bits when I was proving the security of Gatesith. Is like I wanted to say like, okay, well, I'm going to generate this output as soon as like one of these two input, both of these two inputs are ready. And so like writing that in MPS is a bit tedious because you need to like add like an extra function that like is going to write the output, and then you need to call the function both places, and the function checks, okay, can I you know generate this output yet? And it's just more convenient to have like this concurrent kind of thing. It's, uh, I think, a more natural syntax for these things. It's, it's like, very reminiscent of, like, the Pi calculus and stuff like that, where you sort of describe the protocols like one program, and, and you get nice properties out of that. It's also sort of inspired by this paper I read, uh, which is, like, an appeal conference. And they basically, like, had a type theory for, like, a kind of programming language like this. And what the advantage of the type theory is they sort of avoided by simulation and proofs. They basically show like, oh yeah, various, various like nice properties hold, and we prove them in type theory. You know, uh, I'm not sure <laughs> writing a full like big step uh, type theory analysis of the framework is is, is be useful, but that's a thing you could do. So yeah, this seems like a promising approach. Also, like one neat thing with this framework is that you get nice diagrams. You can use like. It's not exactly string diagrams because it's not a symmetric monoidal category. Like it's sort of more general than a monoidal category because you have like sort of loops and stuff they can do. Usually you're not going to have loops, so in many cases you actually have technically string diagrams. But you have string-esque diagrams where you sort of draw like a 
protocol flows together. And so that's sort of a useful way of uh, visualizing these things. So I expect that one neat thing that you might be able to do is you have like most uh, proofs to be almost, you know, visual in a sense, which would be very cool. You know, you can appeal to like diagrams and stuff. And anytime you can do that, you get very, you know, pretty proofs. Um, and you can even develop a graphical language where like you give a uh, sort of semantics to different like nodes. Uh, so like I have, you know, kind of like if you have like a, you know, a Boolean circuit, you can sort of like draw the AND gate on a, on a square and that means it's an AND gate and draw like a, an OR symbol and whatnot. So you can have like symbols for like common operations and protocols for like synchronization and stuff. And so you can have various, you know, axioms about, you know, if you communicate this way, it's equal to that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Like one thing I'm thinking of sort of like proving in a general fashion is that like uh, one thing that shows in NPS a lot is that as you do a sort of reduction, you often end up with like these vestigial rounds where it's like everybody, you know, synchronizes with each other. So everybody sends a message to everybody else and then waits to receive that message regardless of what the content is. This ends up like as a vestigial of like the fact that a round existed in the original protocol. So it ends up in the ideal functionality. And so basically the idea is that like with a delaying simulator that's a lot of delay messages, you can sort of show that like this protocol, the synchronization protocol is equivalent to just, you know, passing the message, just like doing nothing. And so then like you could sort of apply that sort of theorem in the context of a protocol itself, where like you look at this communication pattern and say, okay, actually this is equivalent to doing nothing once the messages are, are dummy. So yeah, some vague ideas I want to get off my chest. Hopefully I turn this from, you know, ramblings into actual productive stuff. Uh, I think it'll be a big paper again, but oh well. I feel, I feel like I might want to, like, try and get some more concrete work done with the framework before I, you know, publish a paper about it. Um, not that there was a regret about NPS, it's just that, you know, um, you, sort of, you can sort of, like, fine-tune it a lot more by sort of having uh, written stuff in it. But I'm glad I got NPS out, you know. So yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully I find something else to talk about. I'm trying to sort of revive this podcast as I do from time to time, you know. Uh, just let me know on Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have anything you want me to talk about. And uh, otherwise, see you until the the next one. Have a good evening. <laughs>